to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, progressive groups continue to call for higher taxes on the rich as state budget talks come down to the wire. Demands to end the filibuster intensify after yesterday's mass shooting in Boulder, Colorado. And the minimum age for being vaccinated in New York State has been lowered to 50. Good evening. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. In the news, state budget talks are coming down to the wire again this year in Albany as progressives demand billions of dollars in higher taxes on the rich while Governor Andrew Cuomo digs in his heels in opposition. Earlier today, a statewide coalition of groups converged on Albany to call for the passage of the Invest in Our New York Act. The Invest in Our New York Act includes six measures that would raise annual taxes on the rich by as much as $50 billion. The state budget is due to be completed by next Wednesday. Last week, the State Assembly and State Senate passed one-house bills that would increase annual taxes on the rich by about $7 billion per year. Governor Cuomo is opposed to higher taxes on the wealthy, saying it will drive them to leave New York for lower tax states. Tax hikes on the rich would help repair New York's tattered social safety net on Saturday, Several hundred people from the Democratic Socialists of America, New York Communities for Change, and Vocal New York rallied in Washington Square. They want to use some of the revenues raised through higher taxes on the wealthy to fund $3.5 billion in unemployment payments to immigrant workers who lost their jobs due to the pandemic but have received no governmental assistance. This is excluded worker Anna Ramirez speaking. After the break, we'll talk with one of the participants in a now week-long hunger strike for economic relief for excluded workers. In Boulder, Colorado, prosecutors have filed first-degree murder charges against Ahmed Al-Alawi Alisa, 21, of Arvada, Colorado. Alisa is accused of carrying out yesterday's mass shooting at a grocery store that left 10 dead. Attention is quickly turning to Washington, D.C., The Democrats control the White House and both houses of Congress, but so far have failed to pass gun control legislation due to Republican threats of a filibuster. Quote, Democrats should put common sense gun control on the floor of the Senate tomorrow and force a talking filibuster, said activist A.D. Barkin. This is the moment and this is the issue. Yesterday's massacre in Boulder comes less than a week after a gunman killed eight people, including six Asian women at three Asian-owned spas in the Atlanta metro area. On Sunday, Lower Manhattan Assemblywoman Yulene New spoke at a vigil in Chinatown about the need to overcome the structural racism that disempowers her community. Until our systems are actually made in our image, we're here to dismantle theirs. elections are being held in the Bronx today to fill two open city council seats. The open seats are located in District 11 in the Northwest Bronx and District 15 in Central Bronx that was previously represented by Congressman Richie Torres. Polls will be open until 9 p.m. tonight. In other election news, right-wing lawyer Sidney Powell is taking up a novel approach to argue for why a judge should dismiss a $1.3 billion libel suit brought against her by the voting machine company she claimed stole the election from Donald Trump. In a court filing Monday, Powell asserted that, quote, no reasonable person would take as fact her widely aired claims that Dominion voting systems worked in cahoots with the Venezuelan and Chinese governments, among others, 
to transfer millions of votes over to Joe Biden. With a defense like that, she's going to need a good lawyer. The New York City Housing Authority is one of the last bastions of affordable housing in the city, serving roughly a half million New Yorkers. Earlier today, protesters rallied outside NYCHA headquarters in lower Manhattan. They denounced NYCHA's blueprint, a plan to use public housing as collateral for private debt. Developments across the boroughs are suffering. You have mold, you have lead. You have trash not being picked up. We don't have enough workers, uh, maintenance men. They're working them down to the ground. I'd like to send a message to Greg Ross to tell him we don't want him. He has to go. We don't want Bill de Blasio either. He has to go. We want NYCHA fully funded. We want them to give us a seat at the table. People who make six figures plus make decisions for us without us being at the table. And finally, the minimum age for being eligible to receive COVID-19 vaccinations in New York has been lowered from 60 to 50. For the latest on where you can sign up for an appointment, see TurboVax.info or go on Twitter to at TurboVax. Again, that's TurboVax.info or go on Twitter to at TurboVax. We'll be back with more after this short break. That was Holy Holy, performed by Aretha Franklin. And you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. I'm joined today by my colleague and co-host, Amber Gagarian. Amba, it's great to have you joining us. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you and our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. And we've got an exciting show today in our first segment. We're going to look at the demands for justice for excluded workers, undocumented New Yorkers, and people recently released from incarceration who lost their jobs due to the pandemic and who have not received government assistance. There's a push underway to establish a $3.5 billion fund in the New York state budget to provide them emergency income assistance. A group of excluded workers and their allies have been hunger striking for the past week to call attention to the cause. The Senate and Assembly recently passed one-house budgets that include $2.1 billion in funding for excluded workers. This is far less than what the campaigners say is necessary to ensure weekly payments on par with the unemployment benefits other workers have received. The proposed $3.5 billion fund is one of the central demands of the months-long grassroots Tax the Rich campaign. Joining us in just one moment to talk about this is Glenn Contave. He is a member of Black Lives Matter of Greater New York who has been hunger striking since Friday in solidarity with the excluded workers. He's also active with Long Island Jobs with Justice. None of the excluded workers was available to speak with us today, so Glenn is going to tell us how the hunger strike is going and what a victory in this struggle would mean. Glenn, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here, John. You bet. So so first of all, can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to join this hunger strike with the excluded workers and, and what it's uh, been like to be on hunger strike. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I joined this, this hunger strike in solidarity with excluded workers. And the reason being is because um, at the end of the day, I heard this quote, um, I heard this quote where it was like, if you ever wondered what you were doing during the civil rights movement, you're doing it right now. And so Bottom line, since Christopher Columbus touched the shores in this hemisphere, 
there has been an active decision-making process in terms of who matters and who does not. And we're talking about human beings. We're talking about families, mothers, fathers who are in extreme distress. And we need to stand by them to make sure that they get the support that every other American was entitled to. And the people who have been excluded workers are legitimately paying into our tax system, but are not reaping into the benefits of what they're being put into. They're at the bottom of the rung. And it's just absolutely insane that they're not getting the support. So I'm willing to do everything that I can uh, within my power to make sure that they get the support that they desperately need. And how are you doing? You haven't eaten since Friday and, and some of your comrades haven't eaten since last Tuesday. How are you and, and, and the others holding up? Yeah, um, a little hungry, <laughs> but um, um, all right, all things considered, we've been, um, yeah, the, the organizers that are here making sure that we're, we have uh, water and we're properly hydrated um, and that we have, uh, yeah, the proper electrolytes. So like we're surviving, but it definitely hurts. I'm only 27, so I don't know what it feels like to age really, but everything is moving really slowly. It's hard to to walk from A to B, to stand up. Everything requires a lot more energy. And um, tell you the truth, um, some of the older women who have, they're almost twice my age or they're on day, um, yeah, they're on day eight. Um, the energy ebbs and flows, but they're so strong and I don't know where they get it from. Maybe, um, you know, having to work through the pandemic. No, sorry, that was dark. Um, but I I'm wondering about the inspiration of choosing um, a hunger strike. I mean, it's clearly a very, you know, a strong way um, to make a political statement, but it's quite a feat. So could you tell us a little bit about how you guys came to that decision or how that decision was come to, to choose it as an organizing method? Yeah. So here's the thing. At the advent of the pandemic, um, you know, people even Americans were waiting for a stimulus that was absolutely insufficient. People were waiting for unemployment insurance, but especially a lot of the excluded workers, they were cut out of their jobs immediately. And so it was up to community organizations. It was up to food pantries and churches to do step up and do the job that the government refused to do. And I'm talking about like literally feed people. And so the reality is a lot of the people who are on this hunger strike um, you know, they're doing it because they're pushing to change their lives. But at the same time, this feeling of hunger is nothing new to them. This is something that they've been accustomed to throughout the pandemic, unfortunately. And it's a sad reality that we have to push to this extreme to actually get these voices heard. But this is what it is. And, and can you talk about uh, your daily routine with the others? Uh, understand you're stay staying at the Judson Memorial Church. So what are your daily uh, activities like and uh, what, what kind of events are y'all holding? Yeah. Um, so over the weekend, there was uh, a massive rally um, that had to do with taxing, taxing the rich, impeaching Cuomo, and pushing for the Excluded Workers Fund. Um, after that, there was uh, a march uh, to Carl Heasty's house that went down. And then from there, um, I mean, there's a bunch of like organizers who are coming together to hold, whether it's various teach-ins or workshops about everything from immigration policy to what it means to invest in New York. Uh, we had a concert uh, Saturday evening. So it was like everything you'd expect in a party minus the food and drink, um, <laughs> which was awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean, like the Make the Road New York, New York Communities for Change, like all of the organizations that are putting this putting this operation together have been really, um, really strategic in terms of ensuring that we, um, like each day that we're receiving, whether it's political education um, or any sort of just different workshops to um, empower ourselves mentally while we're going through this, this physical trauma, really. Um, mm. And at the same time, um, yeah, there's, you know, various interviews. Um, and in terms of my personal day, like, I thank God that I'm still able to to work online. Um, so I'm still working throughout the day as well. And, and uh, real quick, uh, how many of you are currently on hunger strike and how many have been on hunger strike uh, since the hunger strike began last Tuesday? Yeah, so there are uh, 
at any given point, there's 15 people uh, per day who are hunger striking. Um, as far as people uh, from the beginning, I believe it's um, it's two. And like it's just speaking speaking to the to the danger of, of what this is. Like there um, there are people who have had to to go home because their blood pressure got a little bit high. Um, you know there there are medical volunteers who are checking on us uh, on the daily. And like there are people who are coming in with conditions like uh, like diabetes, like hypertension, and they know exactly what they're signing up for. But like at this point, they're at their wit's end, and it doesn't even matter anymore. And so that's that's this is the reality that we're facing, and this is yeah we have no choice. Yeah, and speaking about the rally that you mentioned on Saturday, um, we were able to go and uh, see what you guys were doing and the and the setup that you had at um, Judson, um, and speak with um, Ana Ramirez, who we heard earlier in the show, and she actually sang a song um, that she wrote during a songwriting, like a resistance songwriting workshop um, that was held for uh, you all, and we're gonna listen to it here. Aquí están los huelguistas, aquí están los huelguistas, ya tienen voz, ya tienen voz, ya tienen voz, exigiendo los fondos, exigiendo los fondos, para el arroz, para el arroz. Ahí arriba, ahí arriba, ahí arriba, ahí arriba, deben saber, deben saber, deben saber, ya van más de 100 horas, ya van más de 100 horas de no comer, de no comer, de no comer. So that was Anna singing, obviously, a song that she wrote to the, the tune of La Bamba. Um, and she says in it that she, at that point, had not eaten for 100 hours and that she was going to keep going, um, which, you know, uh, makes me wonder what it's been like to organize with people who are standing up to a government that has reaped the benefits of their labor over the past year of strife, but has not provided them with any pandemic relief. Yeah, Anna is literally a superhero um i don't know where i don't know where she gets her energy i just hope that when i'm her age that i can be the same i think i'll be in good shape if that's the case but i mean when you hear the stories of the legitimate trauma that people went through i mean it's the fact that they're persevering and operating at this level is incredible a lot of people have had issues with landlords or in tens of thousands of dollars of debt and keep in mind if you're undocumented there is no minimum wage, right? So like, even if you're in 10 grand in debt, like that's your yearly salary. So they're really deep in the hole. And of course, a lot of them have been um, exposed to COVID in ways that we're going to find out about years later because the negligence that's happened in, whether it's the, whether it's the supermarkets, um, yeah, whether it's, whether it's in the supermarkets or in a lot of the restaurants, like in the beginning, at the beginning of the pandemic, people were cutting corners and a lot of people died as a result. And so they're literally dealing with the, with the trauma of lost relatives, with the stress of pressure from landlords, the fact that as New York, we failed to cancel the rent, and yet they're persevering and they're pushing through this hunger strike to change people's lives and to get people the funds that they need. Yes, and, and, and we're going to go here in a, in a moment to a, a clip of uh, State Senator Julia Salazar from North Brooklyn, who uh, also spoke at Saturday's Tax the Rich rally as she stood in front of a, a group of hunger strikers in Washington Square Park. These workers, for no good reason, for discriminatory reasons, because of their immigration status, they have been excluded from the little relief that has already come from the federal government. That ain't right! That ain't right! That ain't right. And it demands that we act. In New York, we have the resources to support everyone who has been excluded from relief. We have billionaires, multimillionaires in this state, people who have actually gotten richer throughout this pandemic. These workers, for no good reason. So, your your thoughts on that? Uh, on what State Senator uh, Salazar had to say? Um, I mean, plus one, plus one, plus one. Like she's she's absolutely right, and like even beyond what she said. I mean, like the fact that we have that we now have working class people who are in positions of power who have been close to the pain and understand and understand what it is. 
Like you see, you see that in their statements, you see that in their policy, you see that in how they write up budgets, moral documents. Like we literally need more working people in office point blank period. Right. And, and um, the, the proposal that y'all are making for the excluded workers fund is a, a part of the bigger push for the invest in our New York act. Uh, can you just lay that out really, uh, really quick, quickly for our listeners? Yeah. So we're pushing for $3.5 billion to be allocated into an excluded workers fund. The idea is that payments would start from April to the end of December, and then there would be retroactive payments up through the beginning of the pandemic. So it's a payment structure that's pretty much unprecedented um, and extremely necessary. And the bottom line is that New York City has the highest concentration of billionaires in the world. And you see the amount of wealth that has been accumulated in the top top 1% throughout this pandemic. Like, they have the money. It's, it's, really, it's, it's really shameful to say, but we're fighting for crumbs here. Mm. And before we uh, go here, is there any contact info you'd like to share with our listeners who might want to support the excluded workers or your hunger strike or get involved in the final push to pass the invest in our New York Act? New York Act? Yeah, by all means. Um, on Instagram and on Twitter, you can follow the FEW Coalition. It's F-E-W Coalition. And then for any additional info, you could go to fundexcludedworkers.org slash hunger dash strike. That's fundexcludedworkers.org slash hunger dash strike. Or you just go to fundexcludedworkers.org and you can go from there. But the centralized information is all right there. Awesome. Uh, Glenn Contave, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI Radio. Appreciate you. Peace and blessings, y'all. Thank you. When we come back, we will talk about the future of mass transit in New York and efforts to make sure Governor Cuomo doesn't redirect transit funding to other pet causes of his before the state budget wraps up next week. Una pierna que respiran, veneno de serpiente, por el camino del viento, voy soplando aguardiente. El día había comenzado entusiasmado y alegre. Dice, <risa> pasaporte. ¿A dónde va por ahí, Aminario? Con esta noche tan fea. Usted no se anima. Mire cómo está el camino. Anegadito. No, hombre, compa. El camino es lo de menos. Lo importante es llegar. Tengo tu antídoto. That was Palm Norte, Bacay 13, and I'm Ambigir Garing with The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find us online at indypendent.org. I'm joined by John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. And before we continue with our second segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. You can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to the website, give number two, WBAI.org. Again, that phone number is 516-620-3602. You make community radio possible here in New York. Again, that website is give2wbai.org. You can make a one-time donation or better yet, sign up as a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month. Also, just want to emphasize that WBAI is in the middle of a membership drive right now. There's going to be some very important uh, elections coming up uh, later this spring and summer that will uh, play a large role in really shaping the future of WBAI and the Pacifica Network. And uh, if you care about this station, you care about community radio, you'll want to have your vote uh, heard and counted, but you have to be signed up as a member by April 7th. And you can be a member for as little as $25 per year. But obviously, if you can give more or become a WBAI buddy, that's even better. We'll be sharing that phone number again later in the show. 
Thanks, John. And one more time, the phone number to donate is 516-620-3602, or you can go to give the number to WBAI.org. And now, turning to our second segment, mass transit is what makes New York, New York. However, it has been decimated this past year by the pandemic. Ridership on the subways and city buses remain well below half of what it was pre-pandemic. And besides defeating the coronavirus, what will it take to restore mass transit here in New York City area? The MTA is set to receive an infusion of billions of dollars from the Biden stimulus package. But will that be enough, especially with Governor Andrew Cuomo intent on once again raiding dedicated mass transit funds in this year's state budget negotiations? Join us today to help making... Joining us today to help make sense of it all is Danny Perlstein of the Riders Alliance, a membership organization of subway and bus riders in New York City, winning better transit by organizing riders into a powerful constituency. Danny, welcome to the Independent News Hour on 99.5 FM. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So one year into this pandemic, how would you assess the state of mass transit in New York City, as well as what needs to be done to revive it? Public transit is surviving thanks to massive federal aid that has kept millions of New Yorkers moving to work every single day. Ridership never dipped below a million. We're now back up over three million and we will build back, but it will take years and we will need continued federal and state support. And what will be the impact of the most recent infusion of of billions of dollars coming to the MTA from the American Rescue Plan uh, recently signed into law by President Biden. What's what's the amount of money coming to MTA? But more importantly, what will be the impact uh, here? So in total, with the three infusions uh, from last March, last December, and now this month, it's $14.5 billion to maintain MTA bus and train operations, which is completely historic. The federal government has never supported the MTA to a similar degree, and it's also entirely necessary. And, you know, that's why Senator Schumer and the other members of the New York congressional delegation, you know, we're so strong on this. Um, and it really, it enables the MTA to avoid the doomsday cuts to the network that we were talking about last summer, you know, when we produced a map showing half the subway lines disappeared. Um, and, you know, our partners produced, you know, documents showing that the fare could rise to $9. Uh, we are saved from that, you know, catastrophe, which would really have set the city back decades and prevented a recovery and, and been, you know, terribly inequitable. Um, but, you know, in order for the transit system to thrive, we'll need new state and federal investments even beyond this, because this just gets us back to where we were in February 2020. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, I think, it, you know, New York is the, is the city that never sleeps for a reason. Um, it's because of the subways. So why is it important that Cuomo not raid dedicated state MTA funds in the state budget talks taking place right now? So the governor had proposed to cut a few hundred million dollars from public transit to balance the state budget. He was giving all of the agencies across the board some sort of financial haircut, and the MTA wasn't spared, even though the MTA's finances were in much, much worse shape prior to the most recent federal aid package than any other state agency, because the MTA depends overwhelmingly on fares and you know, had lost the majority of its fares. Um, lost the majority of its riders. And so, you know, we thought it was a huge mistake for the governor to raid dedicated transit funds. I mean, not least that the legislature repeatedly voted to safeguard these funds and make sure they were spent only on transit. And that was, you know, the democratic process, but also that for the city to build back, we need a robust transit system and raiding the funds really jeopardized the fare. It jeopardized levels of service and it made, you know, fare hikes and service cuts much more likely. So we are strongly supportive of the Senate plan in Albany, which would cancel the raids, restore those funds to the MTA, and actually bring in additional revenue, you know, as part of the new revenue the Senate is proposing to raise in progressive taxation, some of that, hundreds of millions of dollars, would go to follow federal investment and put more money into the MTA to avert fair hikes and service cuts that the agency might plan anyway. You know, not the doomsday cuts, but ones that could still make the system less frequent and less reliable, less useful to people as we're trying to bring people back into transit. Right. And uh, I um, have a couple of questions here. Uh, One is uh, for our listeners, what's your expectation of what the fare, the basic fare will be 
um, through 2021. Is it expected to go up any or stay the same? Um, and, and also just uh, in terms of the number of trains that are going to be running, I mean, we're, we're still in a pandemic and if more people are riding the, in the, in the system, it seems like we need more trains or lest we have cars packed uh, full of people. So we need to be vigilant and we need to stay active because we beat the fare hike earlier in the year, but we want a postponement. We didn't win the outright cancellation of the fare hike, and we need to keep pushing on that because we've heard it's a several-month reprieve, but actually it should be a several-year reprieve because we want to keep the fare stable as ridership builds all the way back, not just comes in a little bit higher than it was yesterday. Um, on the service front, it's the same thing. Service needs to be as frequent as possible. So we can't say oh, we're right-sizing service because ridership is diminished because what that does is it, it blocks in low levels of service. We need to provide plentiful service, frequent, reliable service, so people can count on the transit system they're coming back to. Right. And also, um, Danny, can you talk about the overnight closures of the system that started last spring and still continue to this day? Sure. So, you know, part of providing frequent and reliable service is providing it when New Yorkers need it. And New Yorkers have built their lives around 24-7 subway service. That's why tens of thousands of people take the train overnight and would even during this pandemic. And, you know, when the governor shut the trains for four hours overnight in May, you know, almost immediately we saw the data come in, which was that the trains were safe. We didn't need to close them in order to power wash them. We didn't need to power wash them in order to stop a disease that spreads primarily through the air. And that it was a certain amount of hygiene theater. And there was an unfortunate ulterior motive of moving homeless people along, right? The governor acknowledging that people are forced to live in the transit system rather than providing them a safe private place to go, shut the system down to to move them along. And uh, that, you know, that's an example of taking the can down the road. It's, it's cold-hearted austerity, but it also just doesn't work. Um, you know, there there are proven methods of ending transit homelessness, but the state hasn't invested in those. And they certainly should, because no one believes that the transit system is a good place to live. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that homeless New Yorkers need safe private places to be. Uh, and that's something that the state needs to invest in, you know, to relieve the burden on the individuals themselves forced to live in public, you know, not just so that other people don't have to see homeless people. Um, But that was really, you know, key to the closures. And that's one reason why, although we've won significant service restorations in the 1 to 2 a.m. and 4 to 5 a.m. hour, the closure itself persists in this two-hour block, Um, frankly, you know, not because that's when the virus is being scrubbed up all all the surfaces so effectively, but because they can continue to say the system is closed. And, you know, that doesn't, of course, automatically boot everyone out, but it, it tells people they're not supposed to be there. And so... We look forward to a day, hopefully quite soon, when the service returns fully. Um, but we also know we need to work on the enduring issue and end transit homelessness once and for all by giving New Yorkers a place to live. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, we agree. Uh, before we go, how can people find out more about Riders Alliance? So please follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Facebook. Um, we have a website, but we are in the process of upgrading it. Uh, we are we are at Riders Alliance on Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, we are, we'll be seeing us soon on bus shelters. We're going to be rolling out a new, a new set of, of bus ads. Uh, so we're very excited about those. Um, but please do keep an eye on our work, um, because we need New Yorkers standing up for better public transit. That is how we win. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Danny Perlstein with Riders Alliance. When we return, we will look at a big victory on the state legislature last week, the passage of a new law to curtail the use of solitary confinement in New York's prisons and jails. Few have fought harder to end solitary confinement in New York than our next guest.
that was Thundercat with Show You the Way. And you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor in Chief. I'm also here with my colleague and co host, Amber Gagarian. And we, as we turn to our next segment, uh, we have some really great news. On Thursday, the Halt Solitary Confinement Act passed with supermajorities in the New York State Legislature. Governor Andrew Cuomo has 10 days to sign the act because of the supermajority. And advocates are excited about this because, um, and they've been pushing for this for a long time, uh, all the way back to 2012. And the act will put humane limitations on the use of solitary confinement in New York so it will no longer fall under definitions of torture. No person will be held in solitary for more than 15 consecutive days or for a total 20 days in a total of 20 days in any 60-day period. Now, of course, uh, still need Governor Cuomo to sign this or, or face a override from the legislature. And though this is a win for advocates and victims, uh, there's still a lot of concerns about how thoroughly it will be enforced inside the jails and prisons. And getting to the passage of Halt Solitary Act took a lot of negotiating changes uh, with legislators and groups uh, that that have a stake in the in the jails and the prisons. And here to speak with us about this issue is Akeem Browder, brother of the late Khalif Browder and founder of the Khalif Browder Foundation. Khalif Browder took his own life after spending three years at Rikers Island in and out of solitary awaiting trial because he couldn't afford bail while facing the charge of stealing a backpack, a charge that was eventually dropped. Khalif was 16 years old when he was arrested. Akeem, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI radio. Thanks for having me. Can you hear me? Yes, we, uh, we can hear you fine. Uh, so, the supporters of, of solitary confinement say that it decreases violence in jails and prisons, but studies have shown that its victims struggle with high recidivism rates and onsets of psychosis. Uh, we know that you have a very personal re- relationship with this reality. Can you tell us about the current use of solitary confinement in New York and how long a person might be confined? Of course. So cur- currently, uh the best way to describe it and the only words that need to be said, it's considered by the government torture tactic. And so to have torture uh, to people who are uh, accused of a crime, but they're innocent until proven guilty, uh, to allow that to happen to human beings uh, should right off the bat be the first thing that's understood that this is for torture. So that means you're subjugated to being tortured while innocent until proven guilty just because you cannot afford bail uh, and to get out of it. <clears throat> now, uh, the current use, how they use it, <clears throat> not just as a tactic, uh, a torture tactic, but the, the time constraints, there are none. So while you're in solitary confinement, they could uh, extend your time. If you talk, I mean, first of all, let's talk about how you can get in. You, you can literally just talk back to an officer and that's considered uh, a, a violation. And so you can end up in, solitary confinement. They also say it's for your safety. Now, that's questionable because you can go into solitary confinement without any mental illnesses like Khalif, uh, my youngest brother, uh, and end up coming out of there with an unbelievable amount of mental illness. And um, so as it is currently, how long can someone spend in solitary consecutively or on and off? Consecutively, we have people that's done 40 years. I mean, what they would do is uh, while you're in solitary confinement, they will give you an infraction to make you last, uh, stay in there longer. So before you're, say, 30 days or up, you can get sentenced to a one year uh, in, in solid. It's indefinite because as long as they use terms like for your own safety, as long as they say that you were uh, being hostile, uh, they can then continue on this kind of treat, inhumane treatment. Uh, and so uh, the, the, the listeners should really understand that there is no parameter. Uh, there aren't any rubrics for how it's, or it's, it's being, uh, I guess, u- utilized. And they say it's for, uh, the officers say it's their only form of uh, control. Uh, so that means, I mean, a, a system like the Department of Corrections has the duty for care, custody, and control. 
Um, that's what their three-word um, three motto is, care, custody, and control. And the way they get their control is by force and torture. That should not be for any human being. Right. And, and in theory, um, you know, this Halt Solitary Act will um, sort of put parameters onto how long people can be held. Um, but are there many rooms for loopholes in, in this act and, and room for gaps in interpretation um, or discrepancies in the way that jail staff will be applying these rules? So that's the first thing with any bill uh, since it's passed for the entire state of New York. Uh, and it will be. Uh, Governor Cole basically has no uh, no option. Uh, we have a supermajority vote, so it will have to get passed. And if he doesn't want to do it, oh well, we can still veto his veto uh, or override his veto, if uh, if I should say it right. Um, but uh, getting to uh, the actual use now, once the bill is passed, for any bill that's passed, the state of New York, all of its pro- um, provisions and uh, counties, uh, its cities. They have the right to uh, interpret the bill as they see fit. Interpretation is what kills us. Uh, Unless you have an advocacy group or an ordinance, a city ordinance and agency that is overseeing the use. Now, we could find out uh, with uh, Raise the Age bill, the bill Raise the Age that was a part of passing, uh, we could find out that they are are using the bill, uh, uh, still putting youth into uh, adult facilities. And when we find out, then we have to hold them accountable. Now for raise, uh, for uh, halt, uh, halt Solitary, we're gonna have to hold them accountable and that's what we're uh, pushing to do by having uh, one of the uses, uh, or stopping on the use of solitary, is having organizations like the Colleen Brother Foundation in these jails doing the therapeutic treatment so that we can have a hand in and an eye uh, over the staff. So that when we see something, we could say something. Now, that doesn't say if, if, if we're not there, how do we know how long they're keeping them there? If they, if if an if a detainee or an inmate uh, decides to uh, or is capable of getting a message out, well, then that's how we're going we're going to find out. We need oversight, right? And, and um, a couple of questions. First of all, do you have any data on on how many uh, people experience solitary confinement? inside New York prisons and jails, say, in the course of a year? Well, and- I wouldn't have it with the uh, state of New York, no. Um, and, and per year, I mean, they're, they're, uh, Rikers Island, is flu- it fluctuates. Uh, and so uh, they, they could actually say that, uh, so for, for purposes, like financial purposes, to keep someone in jail, period, and this was something that was brought up uh, through the Wall Street Journal, that uh, the Department of Corrections has, the high, uh, has used... Uh, the highest ever uh, budget in uh, keeping some uh, a person uh, in New York City jails, which is at $337,524. Now, that's what they're reporting for general population. Now, for solitary confinement, I actually found that it's an additional 40000 And so to use additional, uh, additional funds to put people in an uh, inhumane treatment in the first place, it, it's just the taxpayers is going to have to pay this uh, and we don't want to. And so this is what advocacy looks like. Now, statistically, how many people go in? Well, Rikers Island at any time has their, uh, their beds uh, in the year 2017 had their beds full, but that's Rikers Island. That's one jail. And I mean, Rikers Island can house, uh, I think it's 23,000 people. Right. And what was it like to go through the, the process of uh, negotiating with legislature, legislators in, in both the Assembly and the State Senate? And how much influence uh, does the uh, correctional officers unions, uh, uh, both here in the city and, and statewide, how much power did they wield in these negotiations? And yeah, if you can just kind of describe the whole process of kind of how the sausage was made. Yeah, it, it's, it's really a manipulative process. Uh, because the the words that the terminology they use is, you know, these are animals. These are not your average New Yorkers. Or uh, they use terms that dehumanize the people that are in jail. Uh, and then they, uh, they say that these are murderers. These are rapers. These are people who you don't want in your community. Now, when you use terms like that, the average New Yorker doesn't actually hear what these people are in jail for. 
they can they can manipulate how, uh, how they and uh, manipulate the wording so it could seem like these people are just dangerous. But first of all, what they say on the floor then gets we we advocate and we we uh, fight against it by teaching lobbying to elected officials like um, Senator Aubrey uh, or Assemblyman Aubrey um, and and Jamal Bailey and uh, you know on the Senate side and an assembly we actually were holding all throughout. I mean. Every, this is not just last year. We've been fighting for to end solitary confinement for for decades. When I got in this, it was actually in 2010, and so we've been fighting to end solitary confinement for so long that um, you know we we go through different elected officials to teach them uh, what solitary confinement really means, what it um, what it does to a person men, uh, mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Like we we we're, we're actually breaking a person down, desensitizing them. Um, but then uh, by teaching it to them, we, we hope that they can then bring what we taught them to the floor, to the Senate floor, to the Assembly floor, uh, so that they can uh, push for why we want this bill passed. What that's like is tedious, the kind of negotiations that take place uh, that we don't want to negotiate. Actually, in, I remember and I could recall when we first started this, we were saying no negotiations. We don't want to negotiate. This is considered inhumane by the standard of the United States government. So if it's considered inhumane, then you shouldn't be doing it. But the city of New York, the officers union, uh, the correctional officers union say, we have to use this because these people are dangerous and they are harmful to themselves, harmful to the other inmates and harmful to the staff. But it's not always true. Look at Khalif. He's just one. Look at Laylene Polanco. Look at Bradley Ballard. Look at all the people who have died due to solitary confinement, and then look at their case. They weren't dangerous people. So it just, it, it takes a little bit to unravel the things that Republicans, because I'm going to say for sure, these are, uh, it's not all Republicans, but all Republicans basically say, uh, it's not only Republicans, I should say, it's some, uh, it's all Republicans and some Democrats that would actually push against. But I mean, it, it, it just takes a little bit of research to show that you're actually lying. Why would you lie to the American public? And I think it's because of the dollar. The amount right. of cost to house them per year. Right. Now, of course, mo- most people would never in a million years want to be a prison guard. And so it does seem like there's sort of a, a built-in deference when they come forward with their uh, what you know point of view or their arguments of like, you know, I'm in danger. Obviously, most people would not want to be in their position to to start with. Um, it, I mean, it seems like a pretty miserable job. Um, so, th- I mean, that does seem to be you know, part of the dynamic here. But also in terms of the dynamic, what was it like dealing with the Cuomo administration? I mean, you, you made a lot of headway uh, with the legislature, but what, what was the attitude of the Cuomo administration? So, I mean... We we tried several different ways and it never worked. So I'm gonna tell you like we 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 tried to put it statistically uh, and show that we have 97 percent of the people in the prison population uh, that are black uh, people uh, in solitary confinement majority. So we have them 49. Actually, I'm so I'm sorry I said it wrong. It's 49.5 percent uh, of black people are in uh, solitary confinement. Then you have 24.1 percent. Uh, that are uh, uh, Hispanic, um, that are in solitary confinement. Uh, we are predominantly the ones that make up solitary confinement. And the reason for that, uh, for for approaching it that way um, to the Cuomo administration is to say, hey, we're bringing statistics because we don't really think that you care on a human level, level or she wouldn't have been doing it. You wouldn't have, uh, you would have stopped this. But then we had to bring it, financially to show how much it's costing New Yorkers. uh, Right. And um, we, sorry to cut you off. We have just a couple more minutes here, but um, we actually found that it's about, you know, that this, this act would save 132 million annually to New York state because of how much it costs to keep people in solitary. So there's a lot of reasons um, why 
Solitary has got to go. Speaking of which, you are a part of a coalition to pass legislation that would actually totally abolish solitary confinement. Um, so in, in a minute, tell us about that and, and why that's really what the goal is here. Well, the goal is, even though uh, we're working with uh, to get it sponsored by the Senate and the Assembly, now that we have this bill that is being passed for the state, we want to abolish solitary confinement completely in the city of New York because we don't have uh, in Rikers Island, they are not, they're innocent until proven guilty. So these are people who are potentially like Khalif, who shouldn't even be in there in the first place. Regardless of their behavior, you could find other methods, other ways, and, uh, and stop the people from spending, uh, or the people on the streets, our tax dollars, from going to a, a, a torture um, containment or a torture cell. And so <clears throat> we're pushing for this to, uh, to actually get passed in New York to abolish it completely. All right. Akeem Browder, thank you so much for joining us today to uh, share your perspective on this, a big victory in Albany. And, you. Uh, you know, we'll continue to follow this story and all, all the way until we see solitary completely abolished. Thank you. Okay. So that uh, wraps it up for today's uh, show. Uh, thanks to Sue Brisk for her help as well. And we'll be back same time next week. Uh, please remember to sign up to become a WBAI member at 516-620-3602 or by going straight to give number two WBAI.org. Again, that number 516-620-3602. And as we uh, leave our listeners, uh, we leave our listeners today with Falling Rain by Link Ray. We hope you have enjoyed uh, these first sunny days of spring because tomorrow is going to be, well, it's going to be a little bit more on the rainy, drippy side of things. But it's been great being with you again, and we'll be back next week. It's going through my brain. I hear talk of people. I feel the fall.